This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking beer lovers? What's going on, everybody? One of my favorite podcasts to do. It's because we can drink beer on it. That is a perk. That is a perk. I do enjoy the beer drinking element of this podcast. Yep. Um, so, on that, what you got? Oh, you want me to go first? You always go first, so yeah. So, I have a lager beer by Equal Parts Brewing. If you've been a fan of the show for very long, you know that we love Equal Parts. Literally everything. It's, it's a German-style Pilsner. It's 4.9% ABV. It is a full pint. I'm not driving, so I'm okay. Um, and it literally has zero information about it. Um, That's what I love about Equal Parts, is they don't draw you to the can. They draw you to the beer inside. Figure it out yourself. But um, YouTube listeners, um, the can is wicked awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh their their design, their can designs are really good over. They're the really parts. good. Every everything has been super cool design. It has. I, I'm a I'm a big fan thus far, and I we've not had one of their beers since we've started rating them. No, we haven't. I expect this to have a monster score. I think. And listeners, let us know if you like this idea. I think we should go back in our catalog and try to start back over, if possible, on some of them. So that we can rank, we can so rate that, them. So that we can rate them, but some of them I don't think we're going to be able to get our hands on again because we've gotten some pretty rare stuff that you can't get always. We have, well, especially like some barrel aged or limited releases. Mm-hmm. I think we've done a couple of St. Arnold's Bishop barrels on here. Um, there are things that literally will never be made again, but yeah. we may start going back through and and doing them so that we can rate them, so that you know our palates comparative to the other ones we've rated. And yeah, those, that's a good idea. I think we should do that. So, <clears throat> Eighth Wonder, Houston Brewery. I had a hey, shout out H Town. Yeah, hey, you want to sponsor us? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a beer from them a few weeks ago. The the Cougar Paul. Mm, yeah. Uh, if you remember that. My favorite from them is the Haterade. <laughs> it is, that's, yeah, it's it's IPA. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I just think it's funny, Haterade. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're clever with their branding, man. Um, well, I mean, the, you, I mean, you get the eighth wonder part, right? The Astrodome was the eighth wonder of the world. Right. Like, it, it, like yeah, their branding is spot on. So... This is supposed to be French, but I'm going to read you. I'm going to read it to you. Like, I think it's intent to, intended to be read. Written in, in Houston, Texas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dome foam. That's the name of the beer. Dome foam. <laughs> Love it. Um, Love it. It's a throwback cream ale. Um, 5.2, 24 IBUs. Uh, the most important part of on this can is that it is brewed canned by eighth wonder brewery. Um, 2202 Dallas street, Houston, Texas, seven, seven, zero, zero three. That is the most important part of the thing on this can. Um, uh, it says the dome foam, uh, throwback cream ale, whether it's the big game or the big chill, this pre prohibition style brew is light, crisp and easy drinking. 
a tip of our hat to the Astrodome's foamy suds in your personal championship beer. Um, also, go Astros. Go Astros. So, yeah. You ready? Let's do it. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, bro. That has an interesting nose. I'm sorry. I got a swig of mine. I went to smell it. I opened it and I went to smell it. And foam got on my nose. It headed up. And I was like, oh, wait, I got to take a quick drink. Hmm. That's interesting. Huh. Mine's a little mine's a little clovey. Really? Mm-hmm. Um Day swap? Yeah. Ooh. That's creamy. I see what you're talking about the um the clove thing. I don't know if that's what I would call it, but it's uh, definitely some sort of spice. Yeah, I was thinking, like I don't know. I mean, I want to say clove. I could see where you would not want to call it clove. Um, but I don't I don't know what the alternative would I I I don't have the palate reference to I don't pinpoint a, that. I don't have a palate palette reference for it either either it is clove like though mine is strange very strange um i don't know if it's bad strange agreed but it's definitely strange definitely never had a beer strange. like this before it's creamy it, it it's um it, it's got a very silky texture to yeah. it which is pretty common with cream cream based ales um yeah but outside of that the flavors in it are pretty unique for a cream yeah that's what i'm thinking like it's Kind of hop forward, it, it, and, and yeah. Citrusy, and so it's the citrus that I think that makes it really unique. Yeah, because you wouldn't it's naturally pair cream and citrus together. Because oh, they would curdle, and it's a big mess. And Correct, yeah. but in there, it almost works. In flavor profile, I would agree. Yeah, um, I, I don't have a construct for this though. Yeah, I don't want to rate yours if I don't have to. I. Um, I don't think that there's another beer out there like this. I don't, if there is, I've not tried. I have it. never had, and I've had lots of cream ales um, or cream cream based beers. Right. I mean, because there's also cream stouts, which that's right. nothing like. No, very very different from um, cream stout. But based on just cream based beer, if I had to, I don't feel comfortable. I'm not doing it. You're not rating it? I can't, dude. At I all? I, it's, not, it's too far away from like a standard cream ale. And it's nothing like a cream stout like you were talking about. Um, I, I don't know what to do with it. Interesting. I don't know what category it falls under because it is so hop forward. Interesting. Well, I'm going 7-1 on mine. I think it's pretty middle of the road, um, kind of German pill style. Um, 
Pills is not my favorite um, craft beer, but I do really enjoy it. I'm actually going to change it to 7-3 because whatever that clove flavor is, um, it's actually growing on me quite a bit. Oh, good. I think, I think, yeah, I think 7-4, just a really good kind of middle-of-the-road uh, beer. I don't know. How much was this? Is there a sticker on it? Mm-mm. No. Is this one of the ones I got at uh, Total Wine? They don't oh, put this. You. This was the last one you got at Total Wine. I got that at H-E-B. Oh, okay. Well, whatever it is, um, 7-4, I think it's really good, middle of the road. I don't know how much it costs, but very very good beer. Very good, just kind of standard beer. I was listening, I promise. I was also dissecting the crap out of this thing. Uh, yours is, I'm glad I don't have yours. Not yeah. because I don't think it's good, but because I agree with you, I don't know what to do with it. Um, I'm going to rate it as a cream. Um, like a normal cream ale. Okay. Um, even though I don't think it should qualify as a cream ale. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What disqualifies it other than they've done something unique to it? It's just so unique. It's almost like it needs to be a new thing. Heard. I get Yeah. I I hear that. I get that. Um, there are sometimes that things are just so kind of off the wall unique that you're just like it it needs Well, that's what they talk about in in like creating your own cocktails. Mm-hmm. Right? If you take um a standard old-fashioned recipe and you instead of rye or bourbon or some sort of whiskey, you use like gin, it is now a new thing and you cannot call it an old-fashioned. You can yeah, call yeah. it a gin old-fashioned. Yeah. It's now a new thing. Yeah. And this is so radically different that. Well, but, I will say Houston is known. Houston brewing scene is known for doing really different things. Yeah. A wonder does a ton of just really weird Random. things. I mean, eighth wonder also has a distillery, right? Which most people don't know. They also have a distillery in which they sell a hopped gin. Yeah. Very good. It's very good. Um, St. Arnold's. Houston based. Yeah, there's a bottle of it over there. St. Arnold's. Nominated and voted best medium brewery in the nation. Mm -hmm. The Pumpkinator. Yeah, very strange thing. Very different kind of beer from anyone else. And then people started trying to make pumpkin ales after them. Yeah. Um, Very different kind of brewing experiences come from Houston. And I really do attribute it to the massive amount of like interculturality that we have in Houston. That's exactly what it is. Next to New York City, Houston is the most diverse city in the nation. Yeah. Oh, it's very true. And I love this city. It's my, Um, it's, it's my favorite city. Agreed. But if I'm rating this as a cream ale, um, I think I got to put it middle of the road. Um, to like six five, yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of where I was wanting to put it to. It it got too weird in the cream category, so it needs to. It can't rate high as a cream because it's so radically different. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's very fair. But if I were to rate it on like a new thing, obviously it has to be a ten because like that's 
Well, it's it's, it's the, the only, only reference point. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Nice. Well, let's talk more about God's knowledge. So, also, I also are you guys enjoying this this series? We're we're only two episodes in, uh, and I would like to hear some feedback. Well, that sparks a question. Clayton, are you enjoying this series? I am, but it's challenging. It's definitely going to spark deconstructive style questions. Right. Which, partly the the goal. Partly the goal. Well, not the whole point. Partly um, the point. I do want people asking these hard questions because I think we were especially for me, I was given a narrative of which God must be all powerful in order to be God. Um, and therefore God must be all knowing in order to be God. Right. Um, and then I read the story and realized that that may not be the case. Well, there are many other ways to read that story without that being a propositional truth of the story. Right. And honestly, and this is just for me personally, I say it all the time. Look, my goal at Wallhouse Church, as the pastor of Wallhouse Church, is not to be... Indoctrinating. Yeah. My goal is not to be the gatekeeper to make little mini-me's. My goal is to be a guide. As a pastor, I I feel like my goal is to study up and to be as well-versed in all of Christian theology and experience as I can be in order so that when you come to me and you say, hey, I feel like the Lord is saying this. I feel like the Lord's working me in this way. I feel like I feel like I'm being led this way. I have reference points. I have data points that I can point to and go, hey, here's a resource for you. Here's here's how I feel like we can further your formation in this time right now. Here's here's how I think I can assist you further along in your journey. I'm a guide. And my my only goal is to make sure that you stay within the very, very wide boundaries of the creeds. If you stay within the wide boundaries of the creeds, more power to you. Who am I to say that the Holy Spirit at work in you is wrong? Mm. Um, for me, it's the creeds that are the gatekeeper, and I'm the guide on the journey once we get in the pasture. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I want you to, to ask that question because my suspicion is that you were only given one way to view God of which if we can be real honest with ourselves for most people breaks down in moments of crisis Uh, in moments of crisis and moments of trauma when you don't get the result you asked for you must begin to question God's knowledge, God's power, all of these things. And I think it's because people are not having this conversation and conversations adjacent to it that when people get to those moments of crisis, they feel like their only resort is to leave the church. Yeah. Because they haven't been told another way to read the narrative. Why is the church being like mass exodus from people of faith in between the age of 25 and 35 
Well, I think it's twofold. Number one, nobody's given them an alternative reading to this kind of uber sovereignty narrative of God. Yeah. And the other part is, well, because historically the church oppresses people. Right. Yeah. Like I, I really think it's really those two reasons that the young people, quote unquote, the young people are leaving the church. And so, yes, it is challenging. It's supposed to be. It's right. supposed to be deconstructive sparking. It's supposed to make you think differently. It's well, supposed to make you question all these things you've been told in order that you don't just receive a faith somebody give you, you embody yeah. a faith you believe in. Well, and and that's part of the reason I wanted to bring it up is because it is supposed to be sparking some sort of deconstruction. And I want them to reach out and talk about it. You know, let us Absolutely. know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, because this is a very difficult conversation for a lot of people. Um, and you shouldn't be having this. You shouldn't have to have this conversation with yourself. You should be having this conversation in your ripples and in your wells. Yeah. I mean, this is a conversation that not, that should not be had alone. I mean, literally the reason these podcasts exist are resources for our ripples. Yep. Our, our kind of covenant groups of, of like-minded people that are gathering together, um, as their schedules permit in order to pursue spiritual formation. Right. Um, that's why these exist to spark conversation, to challenge one another, to grow in our faith, to do all the things that we need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so on that same conversation, let's talk about a very revealing text today. Okay. Exodus 32, very famous text. If you've been around church for any length of time, you're gonna, you are going to have heard this text talked about. This is the text of the golden calf. This is the text when Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God and leaves Aaron and the people of Israel down at the foot of the mountain. This is at the foot of Mount Sinai. Which, if you didn't know, they stay here for a really long time. A really long time. They stay here for a really long time. As Moses goes up and spends a significant amount of time with God, Aaron and the people are down, and they freak out. Yeah. And they bring all their jewelry together and all their valuables they melt the gold down and they build a golden calf, an altar, like an like a, an idol. This golden calf idol. This is what the text says. 32.1 When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us as for, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? We did not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, and cast an image of a calf, and they said... 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Now, sacrifice is a common religious practice across all of the ancient Near East. Yep. Every major religion had sacrifices. And so Israel also has sacrifices, but so does everybody else. Sacrifice is not unique to Israel. And so it makes sense that they build this calf, right? Moses hadn't even received the law yet. They build this calf, and they begin offering sacrifices to it. Clearly idolatrous. Yeah, yeah. Like, but also remember, like, God just, literally just brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Yeah. Like, that, that has not been that long ago. Right. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses... Go down at once. You see an exclamation point on the words of God? God angry. Yeah. Go down at once. That's like, I don't care. I know we've been up here for a long time, but you got to get back down there and handle this right now. So in a conversation of God's knowledge, what does that tell you? It does create a question of why did he get so angry if he knew it was going to happen, right? Or why didn't he prevent it and all those things? That, that I agree with you, but that's a very speculative approach to the question I asked. Okay. I'm not saying you're wrong at all. Mm-hmm. What I was more so wanting you to get to was that this is revealing that in any given moment, God knows what's happening everywhere in that moment. So, for example, God's up on this mountain with Israel, I mean, with Moses. Aaron and the nation of Israel down at the foot of the mountain, of which God is up at the top of the mountain with Moses. This text for me is very revealing of God's omnipresence that at any moment Mm. God is ever present. And because within a construct of time, God is ever present. God is all knowing of every single thing that's happening in that exact moment. Yeah. God can be on the mountaintop with Moses and God can be in the foothills of the mountain with Israel right. and be perfectly involved in each situation. And that's why God can look at Moses and say, go down right now. Yeah. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. Now, I want to point something out to you. God is clearly a normal human being. Clayton. When you would mess up when you were a kid 
and mom would be so mad at you that she herself wouldn't punish you, but she would call dad in front of you. Yes. What would be the thing out of her mouth that she says to dad? Can't believe what your, or you won't believe what your son just said. You won't believe what your son just did. Mm -hmm. Read this text again. Go down at once, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. When God called Moses, whose people were they? His people. They were my people. They were God's people. God is so angry that these are Moses' people. Notice the human element in the way that God communicates this. He does the same thing that we do and or we do the same thing that he does. Right. We deflect the ownership of the problem child onto someone else. God does the same thing. Well, and let's think about this too. God had just brought them up out of Egypt. It's like, I mean... So, like, let, like, let's put this into perspective. If God actually is an emotional being, um, which I think this clearly shows that he is, um, his feelings would be hurt, right? He would be angry um, and might have a little bit of this, like, deflection almost. Like, yeah, I know <laughs> that we did this. But like, I also did it through you. So like, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's. I, I think you're exactly spot on with what's happening in this text right now. Verse eight, they have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for them and themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." Oh, the preacher in me want to preach. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. We do theology here. I know. I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, verse 9. The Lord. <laughs> we do theology here. <laughs> it took me a minute to catch that. <laughs> That's clever. Well played. Uh, T-shirt. Merch design. Yes. yes. Uh, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. That's a very unique word. Man, I want to preach so bad. I'm not going to. Man, I need to preach this text. <laughs> uh, how stiff-necked they are. Verse 10. Now, let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. We're going to go ahead. We're going to go ahead. I, I've made this comment several times. On a closer look, there seems to be, for me, in my own reading of the narrative, that Genesis 1 through 3 is one section, Genesis 6 through 9 is another section, and Genesis 11 is a, a, an, an additional section, a third section, and Genesis 12 on begins its own section through the end of Genesis of which you have subsections, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. 
Genesis 1 through 11, those three sections for me, they seem to be paradigmatic. They continue the same paradigm of which God seems to be starting over the redemptive work in a new way every single time, of which he goes to Abram, later called Abraham, and gives him multiple covenants of which he says, I'm starting over with you. Right. What's the covenant that God makes with Abram, Clayton? He makes the covenant with Abram um, that he will make a great nation of him. Okay. Verbatim language. Yes. In this text. Yeah. So go ahead. What is (laughs) what is God saying in this moment? He's saying I'm about to kill all these people and I'm gonna start over with you. That's exactly right. I think that's what God wants to do in this moment. God wants to repeat the pattern that he has done multiple times to this point. And say, I am starting over. Yep. What I've done to this point is not working. I'm abandoning all of it. And I'm starting over with you, Moses. Yeah, sorry. I just had a different thought of a different thing that we should talk about later. Okay. Um. But, this is verse 11. And this is the part that's important for our conversation tonight. Yes. But. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Your people. He he reversed it. Oh, go. Do you want to take over this podcast? No, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. You are on the the game. Do you want to take it over? I don't think I can. Okay. I'm just walking it with you. All right. You you on it. Moses flips it. Mm -hmm. And God says, no, you told me these were your people. Yeah. And so he says, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought right. out of the land? <laughs> Don't <sighs> preach. I'm not going to preach. Who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Ooh, yeah. I want to pause. We're going to keep going. Yeah. Notice what Moses has done. He's made an argument. For why they should not be killed. He's told God that God's wrong without telling God that he's (laughs) wrong. And how did he do it? He recalled a greater part of God's character than the one that's currently being manifest. God's grace always persists more than his wrath. So Moses, God is angry. And there's many a jokes made in seminary classes in the book of Exodus or when you're studying the Pentateuch. If God and Moses were ever angry at Israel at the same time, they were screwed. Israel was done. <laughs> the problem is that every time one of them gets mad at Israel, the other one's not. Right. And this is a moment where God's mad and Moses is not. And Moses, knowing the wrath of God, 
but also seeing the grace of God. Mm. Calls upon the grace of God over the wrath of God. And this is how God chooses to respond. Well, hold on. Okay. can't go there yet. Because we went ahead and talked about the uh, I'll make a great nation of you, and he addresses this here. Okay, go ahead. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. How you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised. Uh, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord changed his mind and about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Again, doing what you're talking about, reminding him of when his character was better than what it's showing in this moment. Mm-hmm. He takes it all the way back to the first covenant mm-hmm. that God himself just made to Moses. Yeah, right? he, he literally recalls God's own promise. And why can he feel like he has the permission to do that? Because he just offered it to him. Well, not just that, because we've seen other times in the story where God put reminders of covenants for both the people and God, specifically the rainbow. Moses feels like he can call, he can remind God of his own covenant because God set reminders in place for the covenant. Why does Levitical law later say, or actually Abrahamic law, say that circumcision is the sign of the covenant? Right. Because there are moments that you can point to that are signs of the covenant, not just for you, but also for God. Mm. Because there are moments where God needs to be reminded of the covenant. So Moses is reminding God of the covenant. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. Moses is literally going, bro, you didn't make that promise to me. That's not my covenant. You made a covenant with Abraham, which we literally just talked about this on A Closer Look. So if you've not listened to A Closer Look from this week, episode 56, go listen to it. You made that covenant with them, not with me. So you will multiply their descendants like the stars of uh, like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. For our conversation today, this is one of the most important things. And the Lord changed his mind yep. about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Clayton, if you knew absolutely everything, do you think you would ever change your mind? Mm. If, like, literally, if you knew every single thing that everyone did in every single minute from the beginning of creation to the end of eternity, do you think you would ever be in a position where you made a decision where it was possible for you to change your mind because you know the possible end of every single story? So, one, I don't think that that's fair because... I have no idea what that would be like. Fair. Right. Granted. Grant fair. I can assume that I wouldn't change my mind, but I don't think that that's a fair assumption because that's something that nobody will ever experience. So Fair. 
the point that I'm trying to get to is that in the the category of theology that we're talking about here is called limited sovereignty. So like an uber-reformed position would be um, super-sovereignty. Here, we're in a position where we're talking about limited sovereignty, that God's sovereignty is limited in these moments. Here, the fact that God changes his mind is a massive, like, it, it's an anchor text yeah. for limited sovereignty theologians. Because if God really knew everything, why on earth would he ever change his mind? Yeah. If you knew absolutely everything, why, and you were all powerful, right? which we affirm God is, right? why would you ever need to change your mind. Yeah, I mean, logically, that does make sense. I guess still a part of the struggle for me is that is it that God, yeah, dude, I don't know. See, this is one of those things that I was talking about earlier. It's just, it's really hard and it creates questions that I, I don't have answers for, you know, like, well, and I, that's part of the deal. As we sit today, you're not supposed to have an answer. Right. Um, but I, I've not given you the end of the story yet. Right. That's why you should listen to more than just one episode of these because I communicate, I'm a storyteller. I communicate in stories and I even think about our podcast. Excuse me. I even think about that's the beer for you. I even think about our podcasts series in form of storytelling. I'm telling a story through the way we communicate these things. So as you said today, you're not supposed to have an answer to that question. Right. Um, but I do want people asking the question. Sure. What does it mean that God can change his mind? Not not in a conversation of godness. Right. That's a much different conversation. Yes. Um, He's still God. Correct. He's still creator. Correct. The conversation of God being able to change his mind in a conversation about knowledge, specifically about the knowledge of God, I think is an extremely important moment. Um, because historically knowledge means that you don't need to change your mind because you've been wise Um, and wisdom is the application of knowledge where could you point to in the biblical text to confirm this conversation about knowledge and wisdom and the application of knowledge. Mm. There's a specific story where wisdom is like the fulcrum moment. It's like the epitome of the story. I feel like it has something to do with Solomon. 
That's exactly who it has to do. Yeah, I think it's when he got the gift of wisdom, right? That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, there are some moments where all we want is, like, supreme wisdom. Right. Because wisdom is the application of knowledge. By asking for wisdom, you also get, like, a, a significant amount of knowledge. I think this conversation about knowledge and wisdom and what you know and how you do it, all of that comes to a place where at the end of Solomon's life, he can look back and go, here's, here's all the things that I think you should do. As somebody who has the most wisdom, the wisest man to ever walk the earth up to that point, he can say, here's all the things you should do because I made all the mistakes for you, right? Mm. God doesn't make mistakes. God can't make mistakes. Right. That would prevent him from being God. So if God doesn't make mistakes and he has all knowledge and he's the creator and inventor of the Christian ethic, why on earth would he ever need to change his mind? Mm. 